You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I am Bill Griffith in for Kelly Evans today here on The Exchange. Here's what we're working on ahead of the next hour. Stocks have been mixed to start the week as the president's tax stimulus uh, action goes into effect here. Uh, but questions still remain over the limits and the legality of his actions on Saturday. This is Treasury Secretary Mnuchin tells CNBC that the White House does want a deal and is willing to make it this week if it's fair. Plus, will it be Twit Talk or, or Mike Talk? You see what I did there? Or could someone else buy TikTok? A look at who has the upper hand right now and how a potential lawsuit could complicate things for that company as well. And why the U.S.-China fight could be migrating to the cloud. Plus, the news making MGM soar today and why you may want to turn to Google's search to find out what's happening in the housing market. That's all ahead here on The Exchange. But we begin with today's market action. Kind of a mixed day here, Bob Pisani. Yeah, it is, uh, Bill. But we've got the continuation of a little mini trend going on here. And I'm talking about a rally in cyclical stocks, what are we called today, value stocks. So just take a look at what the main sectors are moving today. And once again, this happened on Friday as well. We're seeing banks, energy and industrials lead the way. Those are your classic cyclical names here. Retailers also doing well. Some of those uh, big box retailers, the Macy's of the world, doing surprisingly well in the last couple of days. And technology is actually lagging. And that's uh, been going on for a few days now, most of the month of July here. Meantime, travel and leisure stocks doing a little bit better. Royal Caribbean, not a great report, but positive at least about 2021 bookings. That's lifting that sector a little bit. Live Nation, you see the airlines doing well uh, on top of that. Meanwhile, the technology names, the ones that were going rampant a few uh, days ago, Microsoft and the mega cap names, as well as Qualcomm and the semiconductors, uh, uh, PayPal, as you can see there, Salesforce, all being used as a source of funds to buy those cyclical names. The key story here is earnings just much better than anticipated. And this is a rather wild number, but so far, earnings are beating by 22% above analyst estimates. That's a remarkable number. Normally, you have a beat of about 3%. Revenue is only beating by about 1%. That's pretty remarkable. And most of that gain we're seeing, guys, it's because of cost cutting. People are laying off, companies laying off people and trying to save costs any way they can. Back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. So, uh, Trade Secretary Steve Mnuchin told CNBC this morning that there is room for a compromise and a deal on another COVID relief package, and it could be reached this week, he said, if Democrats would be reasonable. Now, this announcement, of course, comes after President Trump on Saturday signed those executive orders going around Congress to deliver aid to Americans, but it has caused some confusion in the process. Let's try and make sense of it now if we can. Libby Cantrell's with us today. She's head of public policy at PIMCO. Tony Fratto is the founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies and a CNBC contributor. Good to see you both. Thank you for joining us today. Tony, what, what does the president's executive uh, orders over the weekend do to the negotiating process right now in Congress? Yeah, I'm not sure it does a lot except to, uh, you know, change the rhetoric around the negotiations, uh, Bill. You know, he's got uh, the, the, we get to the UI benefits in a minute, but just delaying the, you know, the student loan and uh, uh, mortgage forbearance, uh, you know, stretching those out. Um, you know, those are, they're not huge things. There are things that the Democrats essentially can pocket because they were in favor of them also. Uh, the payroll tax holiday, nobody was really in favor of it, uh, and there are, you know, questions about if you're just delaying the the, the, the payroll uh, taxes. He has this promise of, you know, potentially 
you know, repealing it or, or, or forgiving it completely sometime down the road, but businesses and individuals can't really rely on that. The UI benefits are really confusing for states, and there are questions right. as to, not just as to whether it's legal, but whether they have the means to participate in, uh, in, in a way that the, the federal government is setting it up. Secretary Mnuchin this morning said, you know, there's leftover money from previous aid, but I think the states would say, you know, that we, we have a very deep hole and that money was committed to, uh, to other things. So right. I think it's going to be complex uh, and it's helpful with the rhetoric, but not the math. So, Libby, in your view, is there more for Congress to talk about with the White House or is there less to talk about as a result of the president's actions over the weekend? Yeah, well, thank you. I would agree with Tony that this was, in some ways, these executive orders we saw over the weekend were much more symbolic than substantive. But they do likely help to rebalance the negotiations. This gives President Trump maybe incrementally more negotiating leverage. Uh, Speaker Pelosi over the weekend uh, like indicated that she was open to further negotiations. Obviously, Secretary, Secretary Mnuchin said the same thing this morning. So in some ways, I think there's probably more room for a deal than maybe many expect. Um, the state and local funding is where you know negotiators are are quite far off. So um, there is you know quite a, a lot of room that they need to reconcile on that front. Right. And then also the the vote by mail. But outside of that, it seems actually like there could be a pretty straightforward sketch of a deal. So you know I, I don't think we're as pessimistic. Um, in terms of the likelihood of a deal. There's right. another forcing inflection point, which would be the end of September, which is when another government funding bill needs to pass. But my inclination and my, my, my suspicion is that we, we likely will actually see something before that. We could even see something in the next two weeks, even though at this point that probably seems more remote. But there is one thorny issue that Mitch McConnell is having to deal with, and that comes from the fiscal conservatives in the Senate. And we had one of them on this morning, Kevin Kramer, uh, was on to kind of lay out the plan, that, that the fears that they have about all the money that's been spent so far and that's been talked about in the current negotiations. Here's what he said this morning on Squawk Box. We've been concerned about the fact we've already spent $3 trillion taxpayer dollars, almost half of which is still unspent, and certainly the impacts of it are unknown. So, you know, it's, some people I think are going to look and go, oh my gosh, we've got to get to the negotiating table and fix this, and others are going to be looking at it going, there's no longer a need to get back to the negotiating table because the president has largely fixed it. Tony, how does Leader McConnell bring those conservatives under the tent? Well, I don't think he's going to be able to bring them uh, bring them under the tent. I mean, they, they've essentially indicated that there's nothing they really can support. So I think what what uh, what the you know Leader McConnell does have is a majority of Republicans who still want to do something. I think you know, to Libby's point, something is definitely going to have to get done. There are too many pieces that are not in this deal. One, which is hugely important to the business community and to Leader McConnell, and that's on the liability protection that was going to be in a package. We also have you know, the one-time payments that were supposed to come through, PPP reform, so right. there was money for schools. If you want schools to open, there was going to be money in this. So there is a lot of support, even in the Republican caucus in the Senate, to get something done. And those guys have really, they, they've given away their negotiating position by essentially saying they're not going to support anything. Uh, Libby, last question then. What if, uh, you know, from, from the conservative standpoint, the fiscally conservative senators out there who are worried about spending even more money, for them, the best case scenario is no deal. Is that a good situation or a worst-case scenario, in your view, if there's no deal? Well, look, I, 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, Leader, Leader McConnell is dealing with two different dynamics within his Republican Party. One is, as you said, this group of fiscal conservatives who are uh, uncomfortable with sort of the, you know, the, the largesse that they have seen in their view. But the other one, really importantly here, is that he has many folks who are defending very vulnerable Senate seats come November. They are in Colorado and Arizona right. and, and Iowa and North Carolina. So I think, but to, to Tony's point, there is likely going to be more support to get something done. He knows that he will not get everybody in his his caucus to, to, to vote for a final deal. That's okay, because they'll get all the Democrats mostly and, and, and enough Republicans. So he's going to thread the needle here. But I think for him and for his own political calculus, getting a deal is much more important than not getting a deal. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that he's going to be assuaging those folks who are in vulnerable Senate races, not necessarily the fiscal hawks. All right. Libby Cantrell and uh, Tony Frano, good to see you both as always. Thank you for joining us today. Meantime, a lot of economic uncertainty still remains, despite those new executive orders. No word yet on another round of stimulus checks. Remember those? Or clarity on the small business loan program. And don't forget national unemployment, still above 10 percent. So with the S&P 500 about 1 percent from all-time highs, should investors sort of pivot to wait-and-see mode at this point. Let's talk about that right now. Marianne Montaigne's back with us, Portfolio Manager at Gradient Investments, and Richard Weiss is Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset Strategies for American Century Investments. Good to see you both. Thank you for joining us. Marianne, let me just start with you. The fact that we are this close to all-time highs, I guess the market is assuming that we get another package. Is that what you're thinking? Well, I do think the market is assuming that we're getting something, and I think the president has acted as an instigator over the weekend. Um, and with that, the question is, is it a trillion dollars? Is it two? Is it three trillion? And if we're talking at the upper end, then we're talking about adding to the federal debt and uh, uh, just, um, you know, uh, just putting us in line for further inflation down the road. Uh, again, the amount of the dollars de determines how far down the road. And that's why I think a lot of people have been turning to gold um, because of that risk of higher inflation. Yeah. Also, with the rising U.S., um, I'm sorry, the falling of the U.S. dollar. Right. And then just the whole period leading up to an election, gold becomes a safe haven in volatile times, and we expect volatility between now and November 3rd. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about your gold position a, a little bit later, but you've, you've already brought it up, but I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment here. Richard, uh, all things being equal, how do you think the economy is doing right now, and is the market accurately reflecting that or anticipating a better economy down the road getting ahead of itself? What do you think? Oh, all the above. The, the economy is treading water right now, right? Waiting bated breath on the fiscal uh, package phase four here. Uh, the markets have obviously discounted a billion and a trillion and a half to two trillion uh, in, in this new phase uh, and is looking past, admittedly, probably the, the coronavirus at this point. A market, as we all know, typically peers out 12, 18 months uh, passed and hopefully by then we'll have a vaccine. It'll be widely disseminated and we'll be off and running again. The, the key issue, though, for investors is at what level do we come back to? Uh, you know, after being this ill for a while, the so-called long-term scarring effects in the labor markets—that's where we have to keep our eye on for now because it's not clear 
that once this is all over, that we'll be back to where we were. And, and I think that's going to hold the markets in a trading rage for some time now. Um, you know, the, the debate they were having last hour was, is it value or growth that you should be in right now, Richard? Where, where do you see the, the best opportunity right now? Well, you know, the, the value growth uh, tug of war is episodic, right. has been for decades. Uh, we have been and continue to lean towards domestic growth issues for a number of reasons, primarily momentum, low interest rates. And, and until you see uh, the economy recovering, interest rates rising and general health levels rising, we don't think value stocks are going to make a real comeback for a while. Marianne, let me go back to your, your thoughts. I, I did want to talk about gold. Do you, you know, the old debate before I retired was, uh, is gold a, an inflation hedge or is it an investment uh, platform right now? You know, is, is it a breath mint or is it a candy? Uh, are you investing in gold just because the dollar has been going down? Is that why gold's been going up this year? Or is there an economic reason? Do you really think that inflation could come back at some point. We've been waiting for that for more than a decade. Yeah, so the answer is yes. Um, we've been anticipating that the dollar would fall against other countries, and also we do think that inflation will rear its ugly head. I, what's anticipated right now is a rate of maybe 1.4 to 2%, and I think that because of all this stimulus, that it's going to be more in the 3 to 5% area as, uh, as the dust clears and, and looking out, you know, probably 18 months or so from now. Right. So that is going to be an issue. All right. Good to see you both. Marianne Montaigne, Richard Weiss, thank you both for joining us today. We will take a quick break. Coming up, Microsoft, not the only one now interested in TikTok. Twitter is in the mix as well. So who's the better suitor? And what happens if TikTok sues the Trump administration? A lot to unpack. We'll get to that straight ahead. Plus, as parents and teachers weigh the risk of returning to school, they're being asked to assume the risk should something go wrong. We have details on that coming up. And two travel stocks on the move, Royal Caribbean, that may be jumping back in the water with voyages soon, and Marriott seeing steady signs of recovery. So could the worst be over for those two companies? A debate straight ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Bill Griffith. Kelly's off today. Twitter emerged over the weekend as yet another potential suitor for TikTok. The Wall Street Journal reported that the social media platform held preliminary talks about a possible deal. But we are told Microsoft does remain the front runner in all of this. And as TikTok fights for its life, who in Silicon Valley could end up saving the social media sensation? Joining us, Casey Newton. He's senior. He's the Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. Good to see you, Casey. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Frankly, I'm surprised more suitors haven't come out. Uh, I mean, uh, given how popular TikTok has become, what, what do you make of all this right now? Well, look, it, two things. One, it's an expensive app, right? Like whoever buys this thing is probably going to have to come up with, I don't know, $30 billion plus dollars. 
two, it's just an incredibly difficult technical transition. The secret sauce of TikTok lies in its algorithms, which are part of ByteDance, which is going to remain a Chinese company. And then you have just kind of all of the crazy politics around it. This is just, you know, one of the most difficult transactions probably in the history of Silicon Valley. Our David Faber reported on Friday, though, that uh, 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 with the Microsoft talks that they that part of the deal would be that they would take a year to transfer some of that coding, the 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 uh, the fun, the, the secret sauce, as you put it there. Um, uh, is that a viable uh, expectation? Could Twitter pull that off as well? Is there anybody else when you consider the amount of money necessary? We all know who has the big cash hoards in Silicon Valley. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, look, there are definitely 30 to $50 billion somewhere to buy TikTok. Um, I suspect it's more likely to be a coalition of groups if it winds up not to be Microsoft. We know that Sequoia has about a 10% stake in ByteDance. They could probably help put together a, a coalition of, of uh, companies or interests uh, that could sort of take TikTok off of ByteDance's hands, um, but I do think it probably is going to take a year, right? The idea that you could unwind this very large company in 45 days just seems uh, ridiculous. Uh, now, I will say, I also think ridiculous the idea that Twitter is going to buy TikTok. It does not have the money, and it does not, frankly, have the competence to unwind that company from ByteDance and then integrate it into its own operations. Uh, but, that, you know, it, it, it comes down to what TikTok wants. Uh, in that regard, do they want a partnership like you would have with Twitter? And we all remember what they did with Vine, and I think they regret that. They let it go, uh, let it die. Uh, would they be a better suitor in that regard or go to Microsoft and let them do whatever the heck they want to do with it? I don't know. It's been like two weeks since a 17-year-old hacked into Twitter and stole like 20 of the most high-profile <laughs> accounts on the service. I just really don't trust this company with, with TikTok. Uh, I think, you know, ByteDance is extremely angry that it has to sell at all. And so I think they're going to be driven primarily by, you know, what is going to be the best financial outcome for their investors. This could have been a, a company that maybe rivals Facebook in terms of advertising revenue, and now it's getting chopped up into parts. So they're going to be looking for who's going to give them to the, the most money, and it is not going to be Twitter. All right. Casey Newton, Verge, thank you. Good to see you. Thanks. Now, the other part, we've got the NPR report out there over the weekend saying that the TikTok is going to sue the Trump administration over the president's executive order on Thursday banning the app, arguing that that action is unconstitutional. The lawsuit could be filed as soon as tomorrow. Let's bring in Danny Savalos. He's NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst for that part of the story. And how much does that complicate? I mean, the, do you know for sure if they're going to uh, sue and, and on what grounds could they sue the administration here? There are unconfirmed reports that they are going to sue as early as Tuesday, uh, but we'll wait and see. And they may have some grounds to do so, but it's going to be an uphill battle because federal law, particularly in, in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, gives the president pretty broad and really undefined power to halt transactions or prevent transactions between uh, U.S. entities and foreign entities. If he makes a finding that there is some national threat that is localized in some foreign country. And that's what he's done here, saying that uh, these social media companies are collecting data, collecting information, which by the way, is what these companies do. They, because the product 
is in many cases free with social media. We all are the product. But the only major difference here is that the owner is a Chinese uh, national owner in that in that it is a country that President Trump has made a finding uh, poses some national threat for collecting all of this information. Reports say that they want to sue the president, uh, the administration, on grounds that due process was not followed. In other words, there was no back and forth discussion between the administration and TikTok officials uh, about all of this, about national security issues, about the, the technology involved in everything. Uh, they just came out and, and issued this executive order. Did the president have the authority to do that? And what do you think of the TikTok position that due process was not followed here? Executive orders exist in a gray area. The Constitution doesn't say anything about them. But just over the years, it's been interpreted that the president has the power not to make law. He cannot make law that is Congress's province. But he can issue executive orders in the administration of the law or the enforcement of the law. And of course, it's a gray area because at what point, if he builds upon a federal statute, does the president start to create his own law? And over the years, the Supreme Court has uh, carved out a test where if the president acts against the expressed will of Congress, then that is the situation where his executive order is most likely to be overturned by a court. And then even Congress has some power to overturn an executive order, sometimes even by a finding by Congress. So there are many ways to attack an executive order. These private plaintiffs will have to argue that their due process rights were violated. They didn't have an opportunity to at least be heard. But again, an uphill battle for these private plaintiffs. In the meantime, I mean, the president's executive order of Thursday put a 45-day deadline on getting a deal done. Uh, If there is a lawsuit filed tomorrow, does the clock stop? Do you know? You know, if I'm Microsoft, does it give me more time to continue negotiations if, uh, if I'm waiting for the litigation to be solved in the meantime? If the clock stops, the plaintiffs filing that suit, the companies, are going to have to ask a court to actually make it stop. And we've seen a lot of these during the Trump administration, applications for what are called TROs, temporary restraining orders, uh, injunctive relief. And these are things a court can a court can award money or it can force people to do or not do things. And that, again, is a real challenge for courts. They don't like to force people to do or not do things. So they have to show that they're likely to win and that some crisis, some catastrophe will result if a restraining order isn't issued. But on its own, the mere filing of a lawsuit does nothing to stop that 45 day clock. The plaintiffs in this case are going to have to ask a court to intervene and somehow put a halt to the clock ticking on this executive order. NBC News legal analyst Danny Savalos, good to see you. Thank you for joining us today and your insights. Thank you. You bet. Coming up as schools reopen with COVID-19 still very much around, who's liable if or inevitably when something goes wrong? We're gonna take a look at that coming up. Plus, the big news that's sending shares of MGM soaring today making it the best performer in the S&P 500 this Monday. Details ahead. And a reminder, hey, you know, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, Markets right now, as you can see, kind of mixed. Technology is a bit lower today, but some of the other major averages are generally higher. And here are some of the movers that we're watching this hour. Shares of Simon Property Group higher after the Wall Street Journal reported that it's in talks. This is interesting. Amazon 
wants to maybe use some shuttered JCPenney and Sears stores as fulfillment centers. Simon Property Group higher as a result today by 6.5%. Foot Locker is also higher today after that company pre-announced second quarter earnings that blew estimates out of the water. Foot Locker now expects comps to climb by 18%. The street was looking for a decline of 24%. So Foot Locker shares up more than 6% as well. Different story, though, for DraftKings. Uh, those shares falling on concern that there will not be a college football season due to the pandemic. We heard from the Big Ten that they don't plan to play right now. Uh, shares could also be under pressure due to the IAC stake in MGM and the prospect of increased competition in online gaming. We'll have more on that, by the way, coming up in rapid fire in just a moment now. In the meantime... DraftKings, as you see, down more than 7%. Now to my friend Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Hello, Frank. Hey, good afternoon to you, Bill. Here's what's happening at this hour. Lebanon's prime minister and his government, they've resigned today over last week's devastating blast at the Beirut port. The government was facing pressure from violent demonstrations outside its headquarters over the weekend. In a televised speech, Prime Minister Hassan Diab said, quote, I set out to combat corruption, but I discovered that corruption is bigger than the state. Today, the opposition in Belarus is accusing President Alexander Lukashenko of rigging a landslide re-election victory on Sunday. This after a night of clashes between protesters and police sparked criticism from the West and some talk of new sanctions. Foreign observers have not judged an election to be free and fair in Belarus since 1995. And back here in the U.S., Florida reported its lowest single-day total of new COVID-19 infections since June, adding just over 4,000 new infections today and another 91 deaths as of Sunday. Just over 12% of test results were positive. And that's our CNBC News update for this hour. Bill, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks very much. See you a little bit later. Now, as Washington weighs whether or not to include liability reform in the next coronavirus relief package, colleges are now asking faculty and students to sign liability waivers in the meantime. And that's not sitting well with many students. Ilan Mui joins us now with more on that story. Hi, Ilan. Well, Bill, that fight on Capitol Hill is also playing out at college campuses across the country. Schools are asking students to sign waivers or informed consent agreements in order to come back to campus. But some students say that that means that could let colleges and universities off the hook if students or staff end up getting sick. Big Ten athletes are calling for an outright ban on liability waivers. And at the University of New Hampshire, students are fighting to get rid of language that says they're the ones who assume the risk of returning. To further limit a university's exposure to liability is sending that university the message that they can open while cutting corners and while cutting costs on the front end, and they won't be held accountable if they mess up on the back end. And I think that that's a really dangerous situation. A spokeswoman for the University of New Hampshire system said the goal of the document was transparency, Bill, and she said that students who sign it still will have the right to sue the school. Back over to you. Um, would, could this come up in the coronavirus relief package, though? I mean, could they enforce the issue for major universities, or are they just going to leave it up to them on an individual basis, do you think? Well, absolutely. This is one of the red lines that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has laid out as being necessary in any new relief package. You know, he's received a lot of flack on this from Democrats, but he said it's not just businesses that needs these types of protections. It's also schools, hospitals, colleges, universities. So they're saying that this is something that's needed 
for any type of institution that's opening. And certainly in the absence of any new relief package, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing these institutions of higher education take these steps to try to protect themselves. All right. Very good. Ilan Moi, good to see you. Thanks. Take a break. Travel industry's rosy outlook. The transports keep trucking along and the bans on TikTok and WeChat are roughly six weeks away. Could Alibaba be next? That's all ahead in today's rapid fire. The exchange is coming back after this. Oh, my favorite part of the day. Let's catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar screen. Time for Rapid Fire. And with their takes today, Deirdre Bosa, Michael Santoli, and Sima Modi. First up, IAC is investing a billion dollars in taking a 12% stake in MGM Resorts. Yeah, IAC. They're calling it a once-in-a-decade opportunity as it looks to cash in on online and sports gambling. And shares of MGM have surged as much as 13%. On that news, IAC shares are down about 2%. Uh, percent. Deirdre, I can remember back in the 70s when uh, Barry Diller was creating the movie of the week for ABC, and then he went, ran Paramount Pictures, and the, the, the question that Wall Street was always asking was, what's Barry going to do next? We don't ask it that much anymore, but this is one that had everybody scratching their heads. But he seems to have a logic here, doesn't he? Absolutely, especially when in the letter he even laid out uh, all the reasons why this sounds counterintuitive, but it's a really interesting way to go after the online gambling market because you don't really think of MGM immediately because online gambling still makes up such a small part of the business. But of course, shares have been beaten down amid the pandemic because of its main business that relies on getting people together. So instead of going for, say, a DraftKings or perhaps a private company that hasn't yet gone public. He actually went to the open market to buy shares for MGM. And if you think that there's a lot of runway here, uh, he got quite the discount if you think MGM is going to recover and be a player, major player in online gambling. Yeah, Mike, he calls it the, the opportunity of a decade. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, Barry Diller and the folks at Interactive uh, Corp are known as being very good capital allocators. But also, if you look at a thread running through a lot of the businesses that they've owned, invested in, spun off, it's lead generation. It's essentially kind of selling uh, to a list, Angie's List, uh, Home Shopping, Lending Tree, Match.com. It's a, it's a kind of middleman matchmaker business. And their uh, view of this opportunity is uh, you have this list of people who are kind of MJM known uh, kind of gamblers or likely gamblers and a platform where you can kind of have that distribution take place as a as a bit of a network. Not that not that IAC is going to operate it, but it is an interesting glimpse of, uh, of how they view this opportunity, seeing the downside in the DraftKings and Penn Nationals today as well. I mean, everything is going online, Seema. Yeah, it may be a smaller piece of the uh, online casino business, but it's a $450 billion industry that has only grown during the pandemic. So clearly, uh, Barry Diller rolling the dice. If he does something similar to what he did with Expedia, which if you take a look at what he's done there over the last 18 months, firing the former CEO Mark Ogerstrom in December, putting in a new CEO in March, bringing on private equity Silver Lake and Apollo in April, you wonder if he's going to use a similar uh, sort of strategy with MGM, which is growing, but of course facing a number of challenges as it tries to reopen its doors. I don't know. I, not that I could invest in it, but I would never bet against Barry Diller. N never have, never will. Uh, topic two, it's not just TikTok and WeChat that are caught in the middle of the U.S.-China tensions. Uh, Chinese cloud giants, Tencent 
And Alibaba could be next on the chopping block as the Trump administration urges American companies to boycott these Chinese cloud providers. Dee, this uh, could have big implications for the market overall, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is sort of another level. It's easy to talk about TikTok and WeChat because we can see them, their apps in our phone, um, at least TikTok here in the United States. But the cloud companies could have, you know, huge ramifications. They may not operate here, Tencent and Alibaba's cloud. A lot of American businesses in the United States don't use them, but they do potentially use them overseas. And European businesses use them. And there's a new report out from Gartner that shows that Tencent and Alibaba they are growing at a quicker pace than their American counterparts, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. In fact, Alibaba is ahead of Google in terms of global market share. Uh, so it's very, very difficult, will be very difficult for the Trump administration to stop them now. It could be this sort of Huawei situation where European companies are used to using these companies' cloud platforms. And then the Trump administration has to go um, on another tour trying to persuade allies to get off it. Mike, I'm just fascinated by the business model of a lot of these companies. You know, they do one thing, but then in the back office, they're doing cloud business. And that's where all the growth is these days, right? Uh, all the growth and just obviously leveraging their own not only their own infrastructure, but their own need for massive uh, data processing and storage and, 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 and cloud, uh, you know, in the back office. So it does make a lot of sense that they would all, uh, I guess, have a little bit of a, uh, you know, a stake in this game. Uh, what is also fascinating, though, too, is that there's not really by the administration the sense of let's set the rules and see if the foreign competitors can play by whatever rules of data sequestration or whatever it was going to be. It's just kind of don't deal with them. We can't really trust that they're not kind of sharing all the data. So we'll see if that, you know, holds up long term and what it means for drawing the lines among, uh, you know, regions in this industry. And Seema, you wonder what U.S. companies that are heavily into the, uh, the cloud are going to be doing to respond to all this. I mean, they, you know, Alibaba and Tencent have been taking up some of their market share. Yeah, it's a great point in terms of competition intensifying. I mean, what's clear since President Trump got into office in 2016 is this sort of taking aim at Chinese companies. And the list continues to grow. It started with Huawei and ZTE on the smartphone front uh, and the software front, then pivoted to messaging apps like WeChat and TikTok. And now uh, potentially looking at these e-commerce players like Alibaba and Tencent, a much larger technology company. But it just goes to show that they're really trying to uh, expand their pool of companies that they're looking at. Uh, let me go on to the next one here. The travel industry executives, they're starting to sound more optimistic about vacationing again. Really? Royal Caribbean CEO Richard Fain told CNBC that it may look to restart its cruise operations with shorter voyages and fewer people on board as a way to reattract customers. Now, while it's in its second quarter release, Marriott CEO Arnie Sorensen said that despite posting its first quarterly loss in nearly a decade, the company is seeing steady signs of recovery across all regions, interestingly enough, led by China, SEMA. What, I just, I was telling somebody, that I yeah. heard the other day that uh, a cruise was in Alaska. Somebody tested positive for COVID on that. There are still actually some cruises out there right now. It's still a big issue, yes. Uh, you know, so I think with today, just a fascinating day for the world of travel. You take a look at Royal Caribbean and where its stock is trading. This is a company that saw a 94% drop in revenue, but the market remains fixated on comments from Richard Fain during our exclusive interview uh, on Squawk Alley, where he talked about how there's pent-up demand growing as more people stay at home and isolate, and that they're particularly seeing interest grow 
amongst millennials. And that was enough for the market to say, hey, maybe some of the bad news is priced in. But as you say, there's still a number of challenges they're facing. They're burning around $250 million of cash per month. They're still not sure when they can get back to sea. I even asked Richard, are you confident that you'll get some ships back to sea this year? And he said, I'm not sure about that. All right, I need a three box here. Uh, uh, raise your hand. How many would go on a cruise right now? Anybody? I would, just because I'm obviously Yeah, but that's your, that's your thing. I, you, you, you would do it for business purposes, wouldn't you? Yes. Uh, Mike, I know that when everything was falling apart earlier this year, uh, that was one area that people said, well, you know, everybody's still going to be going on cruises right. at some point. This looks like a good bargain right now. Were they proven right or, or, you know, what's the thinking about the cruise lines and other travel industry at the moment? They were proven right in the sense that these companies have the wherewithal to ride out this period and not go away or not go into bankruptcy because the debt markets have been very generous and accommodating. And that has allowed us to just play this game of when will things start to trend back toward normal? I don't think anyone thinks a back to normal is, uh, is going to happen very quickly. But I think that the idea that there is going to be an industry down the road is likely, uh, the, has likely been the right bet. Uh, interestingly, for cruises, though, I mean, unlike maybe the rest of, uh, of travel, it was never necessarily the greatest of businesses throughout an entire cycle. I think if you look at returns on capital and things like that. So, I mean, if in fact you end up getting it back from the dead trade and these stocks were, were priced for extinction, they've come back some degree, but really uh, not most of the way. So I do think that uh, the, the bulls have the benefit of the doubt for the moment, at least on survival, as to whether they get back to you know, their former glory, very much un uncertain. And D, you're in the home of Airbnb, and they've uh, famously said that they think that they will be uh, replacing hotels someday and, and, and overtake that industry. But yet, you know, hotels are hanging in there, and, and Arnie Sorensen said he sees some stability this quarter here. You know, Bill, I'm so excited that I get to chat with Seema on this as well, because behind the scenes, we've traded back and forth what different tones we're hearing from the established travel industry and then, you know, an incumbent like Airbnb. And just a few months ago, a few weeks ago, maybe, uh, CEO Brian Chesky told us that travel is never coming back in the form that it was uh, pre-COVID. And you are seeing evidence of that now. You're seeing people take more road trips. I know Seema raised her hand uh, for going on a cruise. I don't think Mike did. I, I didn't either. And I don't know about you, Bill. Um, but I think that's the big debate. Yes, these companies are surviving, as Mike says. But will they ever get back to their pre-COVID levels? Will travel look the same? How long is that going to take? And that's very much a debate still up in the air. What do you think, Seema? No, Deidre's uh, absolutely right. There is this brewing debate. Is this shift to vacation rentals temporary or permanent? Is it going to last? And I think that raises some really big questions about a company like Marriott, the world's largest hotel operator that, by the way, built more hotels in the last quarter in China and Asia Pacific than it did la same time last year, which just goes to show they think, obviously, that demand will continue to come back for hotels despite the surge we're seeing in vacation rentals. And that's obviously helped Airbnb and even Expedia, their verbal platform. Yes, my, I, I, I've, as my wife will tell you, I've been a reluctant cruiser of low these many years. She had convinced me somehow to take one. It was supposed to happen in July. And darn, if it didn't get canceled, that's a shame. But we'll see if we get another one. There's always uh, next year. There's always some other time, yes. Finally. Maybe. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> finally, reports of the death of FedEx and UPS seem to have been greatly exaggerated, at least for the moment. Shares of the legacy shippers are hitting new all-time highs again today after Friday's record closes, both up more than 70% since the March lows. FedEx getting a boost today from an upgrade to outperform 
at Bernstein with the analyst saying, quote, the global recovery absolutely positively needs FedEx. You know, Mike, uh, we all know the truckers and the, and the shippers, they are a leading indicator uh, or have been traditionally about the economy. Is that the case now in this upside world that we're seeing at the moment, or why are they at all-time highs at the I moment? I think it's partly that, Bill, for sure. I mean, the moving stuff around the country and the world, business, uh, has definitely come back faster than, obviously, cons uh, consumer services, for example. So they do have a tailwind there. Also, it's, it's worth remembering that FedEx and UPS had their own bear markets even before we had COVID. There were struggles in that industry. FedEx especially had a hard time kind of dealing with, you know, getting a proper return on e-commerce and, and air freight having taken a hit uh, through the you know, global downturn before COVID. So I do think that they've had this period to, uh, to kind of have a reckoning with it, uh, to have a, some pricing initiatives that are in their favor right now. And uh, this is even without a lot of business-to-business -business volume coming back. So I think it's a decent sign for the economy, but also some specific things going on with package shipping that are helping. I mean, uh, D, you know, with online commerce, that you, know, you see the trucks all the time. I mean, that, that's just, uh, uh, it was a, a big part of our lifestyle even before the pandemic, but it has increased exponentially since then, hasn't it? Absolutely. Now more than ever. And as Mike just said, you know, they had figured out business to business, business to consumer. The margins weren't quite as good, but now they're being forced to figure out how to make that segment profitable. And it's interesting, too, because it's not just, you know, typically it's been seen as Amazon and Walmart as the last mile players that are really creating a lot of competition. But I think what the pandemic has done is speed up um, initiatives by other smaller players, DoorDashes, Ubers, etc., who are all looking to get into the last mile game. Indeed. All right, pencils down, everybody. Thank you. Good to see you. Love rapid fire. Didra Bosa, Mike Santoli, Sima Modi. Coming up, what's uh, to know what's hot in the housing market right now? You don't have to ask a real estate agent. Just go to Google, of course. We'll explain why when we come back. Welcome back. Mortgage demand is way up as rates sink to record lows yet again. And to really get a read on the housing market, you just look at what people are searching these days. Diana Olick has been doing that, and she joins us with some insights. Diana. Yes, Bill. Consumer sentiment in the housing market weakened a bit in July, but consumers are definitely still interested in all facets of it. No surprise, Google searches for refinance home loan calculator jumped nearly 4,000 percent, according to Google Trends. This as the news hit of another record low on the 30-year fixed, and of course searches for how low will mortgage rates go quadrupled. Now, process of buying a house also jumped 950% and minimum credit score to buy a house was popular. This is indicative of a surge in first-time home buyers, and we're actually starting to see that in the home sales numbers. Now, some consumers, though, are stretching to buy searches for can you use your 401k to buy a house? Those are up 2,800% in the past three months. A sign of the times, how to buy foreclosures has been a breakout search in the past two months, as well as the question, buy a fixer-upper or move-in ready. So either buyers are looking for a good deal or more investors are looking for an opportunity. And interest in suburbs hit an all-time high in July, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. U.S. cities with the highest search interest in suburbs in the past three months were Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, and Houston. We're surprised not to see San Francisco on that list, but the outflow from San Francisco 
really began before the pandemic hit. Back to you. As you know, I'm from L.A., the home of booms and busts in real estate over the years, <laughs> and I'm seeing it where I live in New Jersey now, uh, the tremendous interest in the suburbs. I mean, we're getting bidding wars again uh, for some properties. Absolutely. Yeah, and Redfin actually reported just today that more, of ha more than half of all the offers on Redfin we're in bidding wars, so the market is heating up again. You're seeing bidding wars, you're seeing prices continue to surge, and actually those prices reaccelerate. Yeah, people are not talking about gold right now, but they are talking about real estate. <laughs> Diana Olick, yeah. thank you. See you later. And still ahead, former McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook back in hot water. The details of the company's suit against him when we come back. And a quick note, this Wednesday, the CNBC Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit is going to gather the most trusted and inspirational voices in business to provide small business owners the resources to survive today's crisis and provide a path forward to thrive tomorrow. Visit cnbcevents.com slash playbook to learn more and to register. Welcome back. As we said, McDonald's is suing former CEO Steve Easterbrook for allegedly lying during an internal probe into his behavior during his tenure then. Kate Rogers joins us now with the rather lurid details. Kate. Hi, Bill. That's right. McDonald's suing its former CEO, Steve Easterbrook, related to his firing last year. The company says it's suing Easterbrook for fraud, destroying and concealing evidence in order to retain his compensation package and moral turpitude. The suit says that Easterbrook had physical sexual relationships with three McDonald's employees in the year before he was fired. He also approved an, quote, extraordinary stock grant worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for one of the employees during the relationship. It adds that he lied to investigators in 2019 and goes on to say that an internal investigation uncovered photographic evidence of those physical sexual relationships while he was CEO with three employees. This was discovered as Easterbrook did not delete the emails off of the company's server. He was fired initially for sexting in a consensual, non-sexual relationship. The point of the suit bill would be to move to claw back some of Easterbrook's compensation package, which was estimated in the tens of millions of dollars by firing him with cause instead of without cause. We've reached out to Mr. Easterbrook's lawyer for comment, and we'll bring you anything else that we hear. Meanwhile, current McDonald's CEO Chris Kemchinski writing in a letter to employees today that McDonald's does not tolerate behavior from any employee that does not reflect our values. These actions reflect a continued demonstration of this commitment. Back as over to you. As successful as he was, boy, he did not go out in a good way, did he? I mean, truly shocking and really just unprecedented to, you know, fire him uh, without cause and then move to, to claw back some of that compensation yeah. package. Be very curious to see what happens here. Kate Rogers, good to see you. Thanks. You too. See you later. And that does it for today's Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.